Jesus' house. Bree belongs to those 10% who make a man scream loud when she's in front of a crowd. Her music taste is really tough. Her iPod features Hasselhoff. She's tanned her black tank top. Says I love hip hop. My girlfriend, she's one of a kind. Well dined and well wine. She lives her life freestyle. Hops over each turnstile. That's my girlfriend, Bree. Dinner at my boss's house. Not only wore she her old blouse, she read his encyclopedia. Of course, she did the work, the media. And don't wish for tight parking spots. And all the laughter that we got. When suddenly left and right, she fences all on one side. My girlfriend, we started the episode with My Girlfriend Brie, live at the Rockwood, by Joe Benjamin and a Mighty Handful, of which, whose guest is today, my words. Who's, what? Whose guest? Yeah, I know. Whose guest? Um, whose guest do we have? Our guest, of you course. You fail English. Yeah, me fail English, impossible. Um, our guest today, of course, is the one and only Joe Benjamin of Joe Benjamin and Mighty Handful. Thank you for joining us on the podcast. Hey, guys. Um, oh, it's all right. So I met Joe for the first time. Um, his band, him and his band, played the anniversary party of the Way Station, and um, we connected that night. He was totally digging the idea of coming on the podcast. I loved the band. I loved the live aesthetic, and so we've been planning this for quite a number of months, pretty much since February. 
for him to come on and I'm excited to finally have you on so thank you for joining thank us thank you man I'm used to planning stuff that far in advance so don't worry about it. you're that. a planner yeah I plan I ha you have to have a three year plan that's what a friend of mine said to me a three year business plan and you're in right, right hands and you do that with music not too easy yeah that's that's true <laughs> it's nice to know we made a pretty good dent in your three year plan we were a part of it like yeah <laughs> so um Come July, speaking of the band itself how many musicians are there We're at any given time in joe benjamin and the mighty handle it's always the same musicians it's uh, 11 12 including me um i mean i started in 2009 i formed my first big band it was 18 back then oh so okay. I was 19 years old. I've never led a band in my whole <laughs> entire life. I had no idea what the actual instrumentation in a p big band is, and I just somehow got them all together. I stood in front of 18 people on the first rehearsal that I've ever conducted in my life, and some of them were Broadway players. It was an incredible experience, and I was so nervous well, i had no idea what i was doing that's how i started may i interject to ask what your education is because i don't know anybody who is not educated in music to just decide i'm going to begin a large like band line essentially right. i i do have education in music uh but this was when i started in college so okay. i was 19 i just started as a freshman uh, to study jazz voice and composition and where did you study at the new school university, new school university. oh very cool awesome yeah and then from there, you decided to start up this band line. And what was your first experience with like gathering all these musicians together? Like, how did you approach it, not knowing how it would go? People often asked how ask me how do you how did you find all the people in your band? It all literally started with a Craigslist ad and with me just talking about it at school and saying, "This is what I'm going to do. There's going to be a big band. Who wants to play in it?" And I got half Craigslist, half school people, and the Craigslist people were all incredibly good musicians. Some of them, others <laughs> not so much. <laughs> makes the so, uh, so that's how, how the first uh, band started. But that's six years ago, and that was a whole different thing. I did a, a long break from 2010 or 2011 until late 2012 for like one and a half years. I didn't make any music. I just wrote stuff because I wanted to create it and establish my own repertoire and I got back together with the the mighty handful in 2013 in the mm -hmm. end this is one experiment that they do in physics class they did that when I was 10 with iron filings on a piece of paper oh sure yeah I, I know the experiment and <laughs> then you take uh, a magnet a really big magnet you put it on the paper and the more you shake the paper the mm -hmm. more the iron filings start lining up in a magnetic field around it they all point in the same direction and that's how I look at my band what really happened is all this stuff that happened to us and all this stuff that went down and all the bad moments we had and all the bad players that we had disrupted <laughs> us so much that we ended up being this incredibly powerful combination of people that cannot be bothered by anything you know yeah. that's a tight band yeah, fascinating sure. also considering that you said you almost like took a hiatus to go back and then compose and then go back to the band was there a time there where you were out of touch with the band and you actually successfully uh -oh. reacquired many of them i was oh i made so many mistakes with the first band that i had the 18 piece i i made mistakes left and right and people just left the band and I upset people I didn't 19 know. working through yeah. Craigslist how could you make <laughs> mistakes yeah. I, I don't see exactly <laughs> I, I stepped on toes and I was artistically very inexpressive still because I didn't really know what I wanted and uh, I just like put down all these Frank Sinatra tunes with them and that's really not so attractive anymore you know I just 
I heard a big band. Well, that's something I want to swing back to because obviously anyone who just listened to the opening track and you'll hear two more over the course of the episode, you might notice that you had this sort of like old-fashioned crooner style about you. And I want to know how you got into that particular. I don't know anyone else who's doing it, at least in, in our age bracket. So how did you get into that? Yeah, I mean, it's very important that I take that crooner, traditional crooner style, and I put it on a whole different level. That's the idea of this band, to not redo the whole old stuff that's been redone a million times. How I got into it, not through my parents. They were not the ones giving me and showing me all this music. Mm. It was actually on Christmas when I was 2000, like when I was 11 years old. On Christmas, my sister got a CD that was an old crooner CD but made by a very like modern contemporary pop artist in Europe uh, called Robbie Williams. I know Robbie okay, Williams. Okay, sure, yes. yeah. Not I'm many do in America for some We've reason. We've actually reviewed know. one of his albums. We reviewed Robbie Williams' Take the Crown. Take the Crown this back like, in episode 32. His second or third album we've actually suggested to us that we've already done. Yeah. I think I think you'll fit in here. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. Yeah, so through, through that I got into it and uh, it was love at first here. Yeah, very cool. Well, also considering you were from Germany and you came over here, I mean, it's funny that you didn't learn it. You learned it through that without going through your parents because over here in New York, uh, between Brooklyn and Staten Island, I think the only influence that we derive from Frank Sinatra and the whole crooner group is exclusively through our parents and through old Italian mothers and so forth. They'll pass that down. But you decided you wanted to bring this back in a big way. And how did you decide to like switch this down into it? into an original way because there's only so many people I know who's doing this today one among them is Michael Bublé and I kind of heard a little bit of influence there but you know it's it's all sort of accidental you reach back to influence and then you want to make it unique so how did you what was your tactic to shift that around into something new and fresh well I gotta tell you it's not like I'm gonna give you a really big technical answer on this one the tactic is just be yourself just make art how you perceive it. When I sit at the piano, I get these certain jams that come out of my hand, hands and I just like go down that road. I put them on paper. I sit down with my friend. I say, come on, let's arrange this for an 11-piece band. And that's what comes out. It's really just creating your own, following your own artistic instinct. And uh, swing happens to be what I love so much. So I just use it as a tool to express my own compositions. And as the primary composer, you're a vocalist, you're a pianist, how is it to write pieces for all these other instruments? Do you play them all? or? Well, here comes another person who should be sitting at the table right now. That's Martin Seiler. Martin is a very, very dear friend of mine. Uh, we've been very close friends for years now. And Martin is very much involved in this project, uh, more than people on the f you know that only look at it understand and see at first he's the one arranging it with me so I lay out the arrangement for him and I say this is kind of what I hear what I want and he's the one who goes in and writes it all out he writes the lines he writes the horns he writes the rhythm section he's the one bringing it to paper so it really is a collaboration between him and me so what's the trade-off process? Because I, I have a, a background in composition, so I'd like to know what, what when you have something collaborative, uh, in the case of composition, which normally is, is a trade-off, there's usually the initial composer, then it's passed down to the editor, and then the arranger, but sometimes it's just one man doing the whole thing. So what exactly is your dynamic between you two? 
Well, my artistic instinct that I just mentioned goes to a certain point and it doesn't go beyond. And I always looked for someone else who stands beyond that point. That is just laying out an arrangement very technically saying, here I want a little louder, here I want a little softer, here I want to have like a really thick horn line and here I think we should only do rhythm section or whatever. You know, that's that's as far as my mind takes me on my artistic journey, whatever. And I wanted someone, I wanted to find someone who stands at that point and says, this is how we need to write them out. And thankfully, fortunately, I found someone who can do that. Amazing. And also, uh, well, considering you're talking about, um, you mentioned horns. I'd like to touch upon that specifically because it's one of the things that stands out amongst the 11-person mix, as it were. Uh, I, I find this to be incredibly intricate. I think it's one of the most intricate parts of your compositions. Do you find yourself excelling mostly at that, or is it your partner? Um, you mean liking the horns? or uh, In terms of composing for the horns, considering they seem to be one of right. the most detailed elements. What really, what, what happens to a lot of, comp what, what leads to a lot of composition of horns is me at the piano, I sing my thing, and all of a sudden I sing like a bub, Badoo-ba-dee line, <laughs> like a little scat line in there. And I sing it again and again because I feel like it needs to be scatted there. And Martin takes those little parts and makes them into horn lines. Uh, so certain horn lines come from like a, some sing-sang that I put into the song. Others are fully his intuition and his, his um, creation. Interesting. Well, let's talk about something else here marketing that's a challenge this is not the most it's not the most dominant form or style of music today um even here uh, in america to an american audience it, it's it can be really really powerful i think in certain niches and then in others you know it's almost like a novelty and this may come up also in the album that we made later review here because there's a case that a lot of people look at things that are foreign or specific to certain environments as novelties how are you able to to market that successfully? Is it just through sheer willpower and, and performing and doing your music in a certain venue, or do you have to kind of channel your venues, the areas in which you decide to play and the people with whom you pitch your music to? Well, it's an ongoing process that where I continuously learn and understand more about the dynamics amongst my audience and the people who like what I do. The best, the very best marketing you get from live performances. This is where you really ignite the people. This is how I even got on this show. <laughs> there <laughs> you live performance. It's true. That's where you really get the people. And then you want to create also, of course, an album that re represents your life sound as, as much as possible. Um, in the end, I, uh, I'm still figuring out the right way to put it out there for people. But uh, you have to understand in this country, in the United States... The swing thing it hits a very different nerve than it does in Europe. We just came back from a tour in Europe that we exclusively sold out. And people in, at our last show, they were standing on the streets. They were filming through the windows. They were just completely mesmerized because none of their parents showed them Frank Sinatra. Right. Sure. It is a music that is native to the United States. Um, and it's uh, it has a whole different effect when I'm somewhere else. So the mm. marketing here is a little bit of a different one than it is somewhere else. Interesting. Actually, that's a little bit curious because we've talked many times on the podcast about how uh, outside the U.S. influences of music being made inside the U.S. It's it's unusual to hear something that's swing, which I grew up with, which 
you know, my grandparents grew up with, and they taught me, you know, Frank Sinatra, lounge singing, all that sort of stuff. To hear it being as considered new in Europe is definitely a, a sort of like a coin flip as far as just my perception of that specific genre. Um, anything like this you actually run across because you weren't born in the United States? Or is there any other like musical trends you've actually noticed outside the U.S.? That come from the U.S.? Yeah. Um, I think jazz is the biggest, and, and so is, you know, rock and roll, Dixieland, that kind of stuff. Those are like um, United States native, or um, Native American, not Native American, but, you know, U.S. Native uh, sounds. But no, I wouldn't be able to, I don't really know of any. Well, that's a powerful one, and I actually think that's actually ironic, because I find that, you know, for a genre that I guess did originate here in the United States, I find that some of the best stuff out of it is really coming from Europe. Like, I noticed that in the case of jazz, and this just came up on, on a live podcast that will be released in approximately two weeks of Crash Chords Autographs episode 28, which we did at Barnes & Noble, I mentioned at some point that there was an artist that I was into, a Swedish jazz artist called uh, Jan Johannesson, who um, essentially takes Nordic folk uh, melodies and infuses it within a more classic style jazz. I find that to be probably more creative than anything's going on now, which is uh, now here in the United States. That is, and that's because I think there's a lot of uh, a lot of this like rapid motion. The idea that well, in the United States, jazz had its time, and now it's done, and now we're doing different things, or people look at it as in the past, and it doesn't have to be that way. It can always be reinvented, and I find some of the best stuff currently coming out of Europe. You know, one thing I've noticed. Uh now that we went on tour over there and now that we're performing here again uh, is that in this country everything needs to be served on a on a golden plate right into people's faces <laughs> if i don't <laughs> get it after 15 seconds and if i don't understand the lyrics because it's french then it's just out of the picture and nobody <laughs> will listen to it i do think one of the main problems we have is patience these days a lot of yeah, tracks absolutely. take we, time to grow we're talking when you say we we're talking about this country sure we're yes. talking about the united yeah. states in germany the last show we had people were sitting down they had a drink in their hand they were like sitting on the floor on the steps because there was no more space in there they were in very uncomfortable physical situations <laughs> where they were like <laughs> leaning in the door frame because there was no more seat and they stood there for two and a half hours wow. I mean we did have a break and they were just mesmerized they didn't move an inch you could hear a pin drop fall on the floor between our songs wow. people were so just into it and they they wanted to even they don't even speak the language i mean they speak english but not much not as much as we do sure it's a whole different thing it's an event it's an experience and of course like you said it may also have to do with the fact that well it's a little a little fresher perhaps to a german audience than over here they're like oh that's 40 years ago but, but if also, you waited you'd hear perhaps something new coming through and there's also more willingness to really sit down and try to take something in and here it's like hey if i don't have that chorus line sung to me 17 times <laughs> then i won't then i won't you know make an effort to actually understand which is of course on. preposterous i don't know that's also the case that it is uh, highly regarded i think over here in the states uh the idea of the um uh the hamburg venues as being particularly um like some kind of like make or break you in some sense or the idea that some uh, some people uh, even american artists uh uk artists alike have said that some of the best shows they've performed at in hamburg were in hamburg that's yeah. a, isn't that where the beatles 
Yeah, yeah. Beatles yeah. are one among many. I know also Al Jarreau, like back in the 70s, right. like revealed his whole half-funk. <laughs> yeah, try it. Shifting gears well. a bit toward the uh, the U.S. side of touring and playing here. So I obviously had mentioned the Waystation, which is a plethora of music knowledge for us and experience I you played the there. So how did you connect with the Waystation? Did Gail reach out to you or was it something that you had pursued? Oh yeah, many venues always reach out to my booking assistant <laughs> and they want me to play there so badly. But the first <laughs> quote the Waystation gave me was just not big enough. <laughs> no, I was that artist who sent them like probably 10 emails before I got a reply. <laughs> sure. And um, <clears throat> from all the venues we've played, and this is fully true, hands down. I'm not just saying this because I'm being recorded right now. The Waystation is one of the best venues we've played in New York City. Um, Andy, who's running that shop, just understands how to appreciate art, appreciate artists, yeah. accommodate artists, and it's such a wonderful family. It's a it's a whole different league of uh, of venues. I love it. It's a, it's also amazing considering that we had him on the podcast back in episode one forty six, and we had a long discussion about how he chooses artists and how he sort of tries to you know tailor make them, but also as a, as a proprietor try and keep his business first and foremost. Mm -hmm. And sometimes he might you know select uh, a, a genre or an artist based on things that perhaps might fit the bill. And I suppose initially I wouldn't have even thought of your style of music as necessarily fitting there. But to see that he made it work anyway, and that it was an incredible success, there really and has I, to be something to, to be said for the Waystation. I too made that work, because yeah. I adjusted our set in such a way that it would please the crowd. I could, right. I could, you know, put down some intense jazz covers in there, or just like jazzy ones of my compositions, yeah. and I didn't. I didn't really ballad the nights there, you know. The stuff we put on was also Waystation appropriate. Yeah, well, I was. Not, I mean, I was not present for this, but Matt was. I mean, what was this? What was the arrangement there? It's a fairly small venue. It's so, hard to picture eleven so people. With the, the way the stage is now, essentially, it was the band on stage, and you were off to the side of the stage, right? Yeah, and trombones were on top of trumpets, and they yeah. were sleeping. On the <laughs> it was <drum> rows <laughs> of artists, and then Joe to the side, they conducting grand, and singing, and they it, grandstand it. What, what was amazing wow. to me is to see this band that is in an arrangement on a stage that I've never seen before at the Waystation, and then for the singer to not just be a singer, but also conducting the entire band was incredible but then so when they first started playing people were hanging out r relaxing kind of chilling but as the night picked up like you know how the way station is arranged for a band where it's usually rows of chairs and yep. some tables they cleared out towards the end of the night they just cleared out and it was just men and women just dancing all over the place and it was just a really cool sight to see because that doesn't often happen with bands even if people are really enjoying it they pretty much stay seated and just kind of sing along or hang out and this was kind of cool to watch the floor clear so people could dance and yeah. it, it, was, it was a lot of fun it seemed to be a live success let's talk about something else the recording history and the recording future of Joe Benjamin so yeah. the newest single is that text, and you have a music video video for it as well, which I love. How did how did that um, song come to be? Is there an actual story behind that song? You know, I did not have a roommate for a very long time. I lived by myself for about four years until I finally moved into an apartment with a roommate because I couldn't afford the rent anymore. Sure. Out of college, you know, parents don't pay anymore. <laughs> so uh, finally, I'm in my room and I'm sitting on my bed, and I just broke up with someone mm -hmm. he was in my room and I was, we had a long talk and I was like this is it you know we can't do this anymore and then uh, the person leaves and my phone buzzes I get a text from my roommate who's right in the next room right and I think to myself why is he texting me he's right in my next room is he that lazy what's going mm -hmm. on so I open the text I read it and it goes 
Hey Sandra, that's how it started. <laughs> <laughs> Guess what I just witnessed? Joe is so stupid. Blah blah blah, and it just <laughs> went on this huge rant about how no. it is that I broke up with this person right now, and then he even <laughs> and then he always hears me having sex and all that stuff. It's like <laughs> really wow. bad stuff in there. And he mistexted, and, and he said, totally oh, sent it to me. Oh no! So my heart yeah. broke again that same uh-huh. night, right? And uh, I was really, I was really down on it. It's it's really shattering. To sure, of course. Like that because. We were slash are really good friends. Sure. So this was really horrible. He knocks on my door like a couple, you know, like a minute later when he figured <laughs> out, out what he did. did. Yeah, sure. Knocks on my door and he comes in the room and he like sticks his head and he goes, Hey, Joe. I'm like, get out of my room. I don't want to see you anymore. I immediately went to the piano and I just wrote this song. It takes me months to write a song, but this one came out like immediately. I was just wow. so mad too. And I knew that's where the story was going. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I was really angry and really sad. I remember that was exactly. the case with the circadian clock. I interviewed them back in 121, and I asked her after a show, uh, Melissa, and she, and she's like, "What what place were you in when you wrote that song?" I was like, "It was the saddest day of my life." <laughs> like, whoa, okay, yeah. back away. <laughs> Do you find that that's the easiest you've ever written a song? Was that moment in that like that oh, upsets it? An- there's another one. I have uh, I have other moments too where it was very easy to write a song. Um, when someone died, when I fell in love, you know, it's yeah, the like big emotional. Exactly, yeah, of uh, course, they always trigger yeah, stuff yeah. like that. Um, and so, um, what was the experience like shooting that music video? It looked like it was a lot of fun, <laughs> but um, oh my god, I don't even know where I should start about that. <laughs> well, let's just put it this way: we were on tour in Germany. Mm-hmm. I, this was the first tour I've ever booked. I booked it myself. Mm-hmm. And we had a little staff. We had like five people, seven, eight people on staff the same day. Um, and then 11 people in the band and then me. So we played two shows Saturday night, one festival and one club. Mm-hmm. And we were done at like 2, 2 a.m. I think we were done with the gig. At 3, we were home. Or 3.30, we were home. And at 6, we had to get up. It was on my end so poorly planned <laughs> so I woke them up two and a half hours after they went to bed and they were all like high and drunk and you know everybody was just out of their minds so I somehow got them out of the bed and they were so mad at me <laughs> they were so mad at me and you know they tried to be like nice about it and like Joe just so you know you know I have so much respect for what you do but you cannot ever do this again <laughs> they were very clear about it so finally I got them in a the car we drove two hours to this beautiful city called Passau where three rivers meet and where they meet there's an island and on that island there's this ancient like 700 year old city it's just so beautiful and um, we spent all day in that city just uh, filming that video with a team of there's like a production team they had it all planned out we had two other sets earlier that week in Munich where we filmed for four or five hours and then at night the f- the movie the filming was over at six and at eight we went back on stage to play our last show which was the most successful show and then when that show was over we were so exhausted <laughs> it was the most strenuous thing I've ever done so um, we just recorded another music video two weeks ago and, oh cool and we oh. had a week oh wow so it was okay a lot so more time. I I imagine that was a lot more relaxed easygoing no it wasn't actually oh. <laughs> it was just as stressful but there was a lot more sleep turnover was eight to ten hours so okay yeah. can we have a a sneak peek at what song that's for or not yet uh the song uh we're changing it from city people to king of the barn 
King of the Barn. And uh, that's about all I can say. Sure. It's Those are quite opposite titles. That's <laughs> correct. Yeah. Interesting. Well, I look forward to seeing that. We'll definitely feature it on the site once it comes it out. It was an incredible production. Cool. It'll, it'll blow people's minds. Awesome. Um, so then, obviously, the overseas tour, with that video being smack dab in the middle, it was probably unlike anything you'd ever done before. Do you guys have a big plan now that you're back in the States to do a big uh, United States tour too? Or are you kind of focusing on the album release, like trying to get the, the album done? Let's just put it this way. There are venues in Germany and Europe that say, oh, okay, you're an unknown band from New York. You people have to fly in. You need to be given a hotel uh, you don't have a lot of draw in my city <laughs> so if the guarantee pay that I'm going to give you is two and a half thousand euros that's what they do now you find one venue in America that's going to do that yeah of course not they sure. don't yeah. touring in America with a band of this size is just a lot more difficult than it is in Europe because sure. in Europe there's such an amazing funding for the arts sure uh, venues pay money yeah like they should sure of know? course so for us touring in Europe is a lot more likely than it is in okay. America right now but uh, of course down the road that has to happen I mean sure. I'm looking at late 2016 uh, where that hopefully with the help of an agency can happen but right now what we're focusing on here is finishing our album. Do you have a, a nebulous release date time? Do you yeah, have? Yeah, it's going to be spring 2016. Cool. And uh, this is our first full-length album, and it'll be really the signature of our sound, and and it's going to stand for who we are. And once this album is out, I can see many things happening, and uh, hopefully touring in the U.S. being one of them. Very cool. Um, we're going to take a little break before we jump into our album review. Um, before I introduce the second song we're going to play of Joe Benjamin and A Mighty Hand, um, can you tell us a little bit about The Exterminator? Oh, yeah. Uh, everyone who doesn't live in New York probably won't understand it. <laughs> bed bugs are such a big thing. Have you guys oh, had yeah. bed bugs? I, 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 I know of it. Yeah, you know it's of it? a huge problem. So all the three of you say I didn't have them, and probably one of you, I'm sure, had them. I, yeah. I, we all have a friend who had them. Oh, yeah, <laughs> yeah, 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 sure. Well, I had them three times. Ooh. Okay, In six Ouch. years, it happened three times. The first time it happened, and then it was gone for like three or four months, and then it happened again, so it was never really gone. Yeah. And then it happened again when I moved. It was... Horrific. You have to flip everything, turn over everything, clean everything. You clean lose it. stuff. It takes like a week and it's so expensive. And well, I was so upset. And you know, it doesn't really mean that you're a, a dirty person. No, or of course you not. just picked them up on the yeah. train. Yeah. Uh, so it was such a big hassle for me to go through uh, that I, you know, was on a one uh, first hand basis with uh, the exterminator in the end we were like best friends <laughs> <laughs> and I thought to myself once you know the third time when he came again I thought to myself what other things are there that I could do with an exterminator <laughs> ah I see <laughs> um, with that we will take a break before we get to the album review and we will play for you the exterminator <laughs> The bed bugs 
feeding on my skin while I sleep I'm naked when they come out They make all my defenses go Infiltrators, they crawl into my dreams while I snore behind my. Again, was the exterminator. Um, 
what I like about what we were talking about with your band makeup, what makes the sound so unique is, again, what Steve was saying. It's not as common to hear the kind of big band sound. It's refreshing, actually. And it's, it's really refreshing. And, and with the live video, you actually are orchestrating them. And it's a little bit different. Conducting. Not conducting, thank you. <laughs> well, uh, first the orchestration, then the conducting. Yes. Um, it's a little, it shows a little bit of a different mentality than what I would expect with a lot of musicians in in just producing their product in, in sort of birthing their product and it's it's kind of just an interesting way to view uh, the well, it's a hands-on way to do it you yeah. know it connects me directly with my band and it direct and it connects my band directly with me and it shows that I'm not just some vocalist that that is hired and he stands in front of a band right well it shows yeah. a lot of trust it's my music it's trust exactly yeah. and and it's I, I own these compositions. I know exactly what's going on. Well, it's also, you know, it kind of debunks what I was saying before about the, the whole novelty thing. Which, sure. of course, I, as a person, don't believe. I'm merely parroting, you know, the, the, the issues that a lot of American audiences probably have. But the idea is that it's sort of like what you always say, Matt, about when there's a piano on stage, it has this presence. Yeah. This kind of presence that, like, well, you know something grand is going to begin. More than, let's say, your typical four-piece rock set. Right. I would argue that the same thing is true about a conductor. That's when right. a conductor is present, you see that baton there. The fact that even the majority of the public doesn't even really know the intricacies of what a conductor really does doesn't matter. They're just fascinated to see that. So then, you know, you're kind of ramping up the imaginative qualities of your work. So we're, of course, here to review an album as well. So um, Joe provided us with a fantastic one. So tell us your album choice, the band, and a little bit about why you chose it. It is Banda Marta. That's the band. They've been around for a while here in New York. Um, and the lady who runs the whole shop is called Magda Giannico, an incredibly talented woman who went to school in Boston, uh, Berkeley. That's as far as I know and um, the album is, co is called Amour Tela <laughs> there's a very important question mark in the end mm -hmm. so it says love are you there and um, I when I when I was still in college um, I was under the impression that I absolutely have to make an internship at a record label and it was a good it was good it was a good idea to do that I learned a lot through it so I worked uh, for Blue Note Records on Fifth Avenue <clears throat> and uh, obviously they do a lot of jazz and you know who knows you know one maybe one day I want to be on that label you know you, you think <laughs> these things when you're 21 20 sure of course. <laughs> so I started working there an incredible internship had so much fun I was going through all the music that was sent in every day even though these people didn't even look at it, but I, I did look at it and I go through it. And uh, I did a lot of other things. I started going out a lot and watching shows during that internship, and I discovered Magda at Rockwood Music Hall. Uh, back then, I think it was probably like an instrument, instrumentation of eight to nine. I saw them play, and I immediately was so just blown off my feet and so touched emotionally and so impressed by all the incredible artistry and all that magic that she put into this room. And not only that, she started doing all these things with the audience. They had to clap in certain ways and they had, she completely involved every person in the room, which is such a great quality to have as a performer that I thought to myself, when I go back into the office tomorrow, I need to tell everyone about this band. 
turns out three weeks later I'm at a table in a cafe together with Magda telling her you know I'm at Luna Records right now and I absolutely need to pitch you to Bruce Lundville who um, rest in peace he just died a couple weeks ago he was like the the daddy of Blue Note Records and he was just one blo one floor up for me and I wanted to show him all the music I wanted to get them in that's how Magda and I started hanging out and I eventually actually got them a showcase at Blue Note in the actual studio on 5th Avenue oh, wow. she came wow. in with the entire band she played for Bruce Lundvall and, and his assistant and another assistant and they were all sitting in the room and I saw this incredible live show at Blue Note Records and I was so pumped thinking you know this must get signed yeah right I mean, and it didn't get signed. Oh, it's unbelievable. It is unbelievable. Oh. Exactly. That's how I feel about it, too. <laughs> well, the reason it didn't get signed is because, I mean, I, I don't even know in how far I should talk about this, but I think, or I'm pretty sure, and I know, that the language was a big part of it. A big part of it. And I said we'll, to we'll Magda, I said to Magda, do you want to... Do you want to write some of it in English? Do you want to change at least half of it? And she it's said, just no. Absolutely not. And God bless her for absolutely. that. Absolutely. That's <laughs> how I feel. Good like, for her. Keep it as her own. Well, that's Of a, course. That's fantastic. I find that, that a lot of albums, when you have a personal connection to it, it just amplifies the love of the music. And also, I mean, well, the idea here, of course, and we're going to get into that language barrier later on, the proposed language barrier, you know, it, it can be an issue. But this is the place where I would normally, you know, provide a little bit of a background here. But, of course, we have a, a first-person observer and, in many cases, perhaps instrumental in terms of maybe selling or at least pitching this band to another person. So I'm not going to go too deeply into that. Instead, what I will do is read a rather fantastic piece of copy that is present on a uh, their Bandcamp page itself. Sparkling with mirrorball iridescence, Banda Magda's debut, Amor Tela, gleams in the brightest possible palette. Its songs wink and smile with technicolor forests and dapper love interests in tiger masks, with an entire sun-drenched world all artfully arranged with real finesse. Led by a New York-based Greek-born singer and composer, Magda Janiku, the band may move from sambado jazz manouche, from Greek jazz, uh, Greek dance rhythms to foro, playing everything from marambado pots and pans to get just the right shade of sound. Banda Magda bursts with humor and quirky sensibility and unites an Esquivel-loving vibes player from Japan, Mika Mamura, an Argentinian jazz guitarist, Ignacio Hernandez, a Nagasaki-born percussionist with contemporary classical cred, Kita Ogawa, a hand drummer with every South American rhythm at his fingertips, Marcelo Walowski, a rock-solid Greek multi-instrumentalist and bassist, Petros Klampanis, and a shifting cast of as many as 15 additional characters, all led by the sweet-voiced Janiku. Together, these close musical friends turn Janiku's songs into engaging romps that have won them a spot with Carnegie Hall's Musical Explorer series, as well as regular gigs at discerning NYC venues like Joe's Pub and Celebrate Brooklyn. Don't let Janiku's impish, sugar-sweet voice fool you. She's a powerhouse of a composer, long, long obsessed with film music. As a child, she'd plunk out scores note by note on the piano and passionately encouraged by parents who listen to everything from exotica and pop to classical. And finally, there's a quote that I'd like to impart, a quote that she describes in order to... In order to, I think, convey where she or how the process that, that she goes about this, and it goes, I don't particularly aim to create the impression 
that what you're hearing is a band playing, though I couldn't do this without the musical family of Banda Magda. I concentrate a lot on color and on timbre, muses Janiku. Notes and chords are shapes and colors, hues and tints. They fly around and then I grab them and place them in that omnipotent image engraved in my mind. That Let's might, get into it. <laughs> that might be the most perfect description of music that I've ever heard. It just who wrote that? Right? It's just it's I know. beautiful. It's and and you know what that's funny about it though is like having listened to the album, I hear what's being said. Like I totally get yeah. it. Like you absolutely do. So great. Well, of but, course the last paragraph was her who wrote that, but right, then initially, course. you know, the pitch there. So here's how I'd like to begin. Of course, with track one, Amor Tela, the title track, I would like to just quickly touch upon uh, something we we talked about earlier, and that's the American's impression on this type of sound. You have this whole, like, bossa nova and, and, and French pop influence, and as an American, I can only speak to this album in terms of its impact on an American audience. There is this perception of French pop and separately of bossa nova as these, again, novel curiosities. Thoroughly enjoyable, but tethered to amiable, amiable specific environments. They're flashy, but also smooth, sometimes overbloated with texture like a child waving his arms and thus perceived as more designed for theater and live performance with dancers and set design rather than for the refined platform of studio production. I want to interrupt myself to say that this is all hogwash, like I said before, <laughs> but I, I, I do believe that a part of this is the marketing challenge, like we talked about, and the language barrier. Not that that means anything to a musician, but I I do want to come back to that. My initial point is that the opening like 16 bars run the risk of it being perceived in this sense as a novelty, and this is sort of like an emblematic showcase of bossa nova and French pop, and that's all it could be left at. The whole tinny vaudevillian piano, the acoustic tropicalia guitar, upright bossa nova bass line, shakers, accordion transitions, all of this, but then after 16 bars, this is done to me, because the chorus puts this piece in perspective. It's phenomenal. For obvious reasons, I think it's the emotional center of the piece asking that question, amor te la, in its very, very rich sense, with the chord transitions, and it just, it reaches deeper into the whole genre than I think American audiences are very often uh, infer that it is capable of as a genre. And one of the main ways this this depth is, re is reached is purely through her, vo her vocals. They're, they're slightly childish in nature, but it's a pixie singing here. Very smoky, but very far away. Very small voice that actually creates a very large impact as a song as a whole. It's a great, uh, just, head-scratcher to have something, someone that sounds so quiet and almost background music-wise, but to be such a focal part of the song itself, to really, everything there is just to make the vocals sound better. I've said before when we've covered uh, foreign language records, because we've done it a few times on, on this podcast, I kind of like that more sometimes. I like letting go of the lyrics for a while and just accepting that the vocalist is another instrument. And her instrument is fan-damn-tastic. Um, I like the... the she's... I, I describe it as bubblegum sweet voice, but what I really mean is that she's just got this really beautiful but unique character in her singing style um it's and it just draws you in you you know almost there's kind of a wink and a nod in it and i like that kind of theatricality to it also i think singing it in french and having french music causes the listener to want to get a little bit into the language and to learn a little bit about it or maybe look up one word if you only look up the title of the songs that already says so much about the song itself 
Another interesting point is that back then when I met Magda and we talked about pitching them to Blue Note, she gave me a couple tracks of Amortela, uh, I think three of them, unmastered, raw, kind of out of the studio, hardly mixed, and they were completely different, same song, but very different timbre. I think it took her a couple runs until she said, this is what I want. Yeah. I, I saw... I saw the other recordings that went through different routes to perform the song. She really knows what she's doing, you know, because she's done it wrong. Not wrong, but she's done it different ways many times. And uh, in Germany, growing up in Europe or anywhere outside of English-speaking countries, hearing music and not understanding the language is a day-to-day thing of course. that everyone is so familiar with other than English-speaking people. Sure. Only here can you, like, fly through, well, here in Russia, can you fly three hours, you know, or five hours, seven hours, and still you're guaranteed to land in a place that speaks the same language. We're just so immersed. Even the fact that we're even talking about it being a different language shows that we're so not used to it. Sure. Not exposed to the languages. In France, if this podcast happened in France, I bet you at least half of all of your podcasts would be about some English-speaking music. Yeah. Because that's all we listen to. There. All right. Yeah. Well, I, I do have some thoughts on this since we're really getting into the to the lyrics and the language barrier up front. I mean, obviously, yes, all these language, all these lyrics are in French. We speak English here in America, and that can be a barrier, not an unbreakable barrier, but it's a barrier. Normally, listening to any piece of music in another language forces us at least to leave a lot up to the imagination. We hear the typical peaks and valleys of speech, but we can't discern whether a certain inflection is a part of the word or some sort of natural inflection dictated by the dialect itself or in an attribution on the part of the speaker to animate and to color the words themselves. I had this issue a lot with, with a lot of languages, but French is actually something in particular. It's a language that, that is so inflected, it flares up the imagination the second it's even spoken. Add to that Magda's obviously excessively animated singing style, and I think the barrier that I spoke of might as well not even exist at all for me on this album. At least, the album is right now my supreme example to the contrary. I'm completely immersed in every word, and I'm desperate to understand it. Oh. I'm not going to, I'm not going to be, uh... Uh, coy here. I, it has happened to me previously on other albums. I'm not European, I, so I am used to, you know, constantly encountering English lyrics. But then I, I also listen to a lot of instrumentals, so it's almost besides the point. But to me, this is a specific case. It actually reaches out and beyond. And it does help that being a romantic language, English has borrowed very heavily from French, Italian, and Spanish. So, well, even English if you is do- not romantic, but English, English is, bar- is borrowed from borrowed. French, which is yeah. romantic. Yeah. yeah. It, it's uh, you still will pick up words here and there. There's one point where I actually went, oh, I know exactly what this song means by just hearing one line and knowing what the title melt, but uh, meant. To and... me, it's that animation. To me, yeah. it's all in the way in which she sings it. She, it's, she's very crisp, and I do find this actually in a lot of French music. It's 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 more enunciated. There can be that almost like like downtrodden slur, and we do sort of get that on later tracks. But here, everything is just crisp and tight, and I feel like you really have to be be deaf not to hear, you know, what that inflection is, and at least what the emotion is that's being conveyed. I agree. And we should also talk a little bit about the instrumentation, of course. Steve got into it a little bit in the beginning, but what I really like about this track is, as an introduction, it's very dancey, you've got that bossa nova sound that becomes something a little more, but, you know, it's very upbeat, and I really kind of got wrapped up in the entertainment value of the track as well. It was that bass that I really liked, the, uh, 
subtly playful. Every here and there, it would just rise up a little bit higher. And it, it being a bass, being as deep as it was, it still promoted that upbeat surprisingly well. And as a sucker for bass, I will say it over and over again, having that as an undercurrent working with her vocals really did keep that pixie kind of a voice very very energized for me. Well, that's something that I think Bossa Nova is often mistaken for, for being something that's that's uh, tantamount only to an undercurrent. Like, it can be more, but that's that's just the, the, well, the base, no pun intended, that's the basic side of it. It really is just that one, a two, a three, a four. You know, that off of that, you can build incredibly unique things. So all of a sudden, people hear that rhythm, and then it's like, oh, this is in a box immediately. As I said, that could happen as of the first 16 bars. Then all of a sudden, you, you need to listen to the other layers. There's just there's more that she's doing. Everything from, of course, the accordion solos, that's where you get in like the whole French pop. Um, and the fact that she comes back to this chorus time and time again, she really, really milks it. And frankly, I love her for it. I, I, I know that that's maybe something that American audience might also, like, all right, they all they want is the hook. But this is something that's a little bit more, there's more investment that I find is the idea of just that question, amor te la. I'm not going to embarrass myself by reading uh, the French lyrics, but I will read some of these English lyrics. Bouquets of roses, songs that speak of one thing, love, love, an earthquake, a neck piece that holds the key to my happiness. Love always, love, are you there? Love, I'm looking for your figure, love, is that you? Love, why are you hiding from me? A dream of kisses, couple of words caressing the neck. Love, love, the world's turning upside down. Who will bring my happiness? It's very, very, like, it's like on the edge of that desperation, and I feel this entirely within that hook, which is why I wait for it every, if it's 16 bars or so. And it's beautifully poetic in English and even more so in French. I think that it clearly conveys the emotionale of this track very simply through those very, you know, not overly complex, but very poignant and emotional lyrics. Let me talk about the tail end really quick here, because the final chorus is actually just this 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 reduction of of the hook the, of the chorus itself, where all other instruments strip away. You don't have you don't have the, the the fuller chords here, but instead it's it's these broken chords on purely the acoustic guitar and and her vocals. Uh, those are the two constants. But just the way in which it's voiced is absolutely gorgeous. I mean, you hear this like C sharp major eleventh emphasized a little more so, and then finally there's that like this classic little twist at the end to an F-sharp uh, Domin 11th. That was phenomenal. It's, al it's almost like retro in that sense. You could hear that being done like on an old school, like 1960s Brazilian uh, bossa nova track. But, it, I don't know, because you're mixing the more modern styles with these older styles, with something that's over from Europe and down in South America, I, this is just the perfect world music to me. It should be embraced and by people rather than like isolated and, and put in a box. This breakdown also showcases the, the subtlety that was woven within the track itself. It, in retrospect, looking at that one piece at the end and trying to apply to the rest of the song really showed there was a lot more going on there than you can really start even picking apart on the second or third listen. There's, there's just too much going on. When she's talking about being an experimenter in layers to really doing something outside the box, there was more layers than I can even think to count that I probably didn't even hear. I think that while the phrase, like, I don't know whether to laugh or cry is thrown around a lot, I actually had the experience during this track, I don't know whether to dance or cry. <laughs> that was that was like what I was experiencing, especially for the return of that chorus. And well, I don't mean to be shallow in just honing on the chorus here, but it was a, it was a really good uh, view into what she's capable of, and that came on later in the album. 
Certainly that little Latin drum insert, four, eight bars it is, that mm. will make you dance. Yeah. It is when you listen to it on really good speakers, all of a sudden you're just surrounded by percussion. This incredibly intricate percussion and it sounds so, so like... Puerto Rico, no, no, like a Brazilian carnival. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So gorgeous that little insert. It's like a little. What, what, what? How does it belong here? But it's just too gorgeous. And also, you. T oh, that's right. The, uh, the well, there's also that like jungle funk like toward the end. Yep. And that actually was the part. Um, but it's funny you mentioned about listening on speakers because there's something about this, especially mixing wise, that really, really has to be noted. That sets this even apart from the rest, just on mixing quality alone. Everything is so clean and so rich, and I want to know how she. How she pursued that, how she came up this with it. This album strives on how amazingly it is produced. Yeah. I think the producer she worked with called Fab, Fab Dupont or something like that. I forget his name. He's done really big jobs in the, in the past. And uh, she does a lot of it herself. She did study music production. So she's the one on the knobs deciding things as well, you know. She's really on top of it. And the, one of the biggest qualities of this entire thing is just the audio, the sonic experience that you won't get on so many other albums. And it's, it's also conceivable that because of how many members she has, you know, it's a matter of almost just... just having your way with it you go from one member to the next to the next and it's just like put that track down that put that that track down there it's almost like this insatiable composer and that's what i get from her every step of the way mm. let's go to track two asteroid asteroid ah, asteroid so much better um, <laughs> it's on freaking pandora i was in yeah. a restaurant hey. the other day and it came on oh very cool <laughs> yes um so what i love about this track is it's very succinct it's very jaunty this is where you really get that kind of performance feel it feels very vaudevillian almost yeah. yeah like there's a scene happening here and when we went into the lyrics a little bit because you were telling us some of the meaning it it conveys that as well it wasn't just a scene. It felt like it tr was doing an excellent job transitioning through scenes. It was like a sketch, an imaginative sketch. Exactly. It, it's, the scenery does change as you're going along, but there's still an undercurrent that keeps the whole piece together. Uh, w could you read the lyrics for us in the French? Viens chez mon astéroïde, viens remplir ma planète vide. Viens chez mon astéroïde, mais enlève tes chaussures. Ma planète a quatre lunes. Il, en, il y en a deux sur chaque dune et le ciel pleut des plumes chaque samedi. Just to give you a taste and also <laughs> just the idea of, you know, the, the, the texture of the language itself. It's something I almost never really have to describe because it's like, what are we going to English, 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 English. Well, you don't remember how to talk about texture unless you're actually talking about the timbres of specific singers. But here, it's actually texture. And that French is the something that aids to this that no other language, in my opinion, compares to in quite the same degree. One example how she makes beautiful use of this language is the word chaque means yeah. every, okay? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And you say chaque. But she sings chaque. Mm -hmm. Because it's written shaka, so she goes shaka samadhi, shaka samadhi, and that makes a really interesting, just like lyric. It's almost like it's almost like textural it's counterpoint. It's, it's incredible, it's phenomenal. 
Um, but also let's talk about, let's get back to the music here, because this is the kind of thing that almost is tantamount to cabaret, which is this sort of stereotypical yeah. image that I think a lot of people have of France, the idea of like, you know, soldiers came, went over there in World War II and they all did this experience, but like, you gotta go to Paris for the next like 60 years. We've just had this, this, uh, mystique surrounding it. And it, it kind of has this French cabaret sound and also plays out as if she is really seducing someone on stage. She's <laughs> dancing around to her own words and kind of luring someone over. And there's all these Illusions to the to the the planets and to celestial bodies, you know, and the idea that that someone is going to occupy her planet. I don't know if that's innuendo or not, but that's what I'm kind of gathering here in well, a loose sense. Because the whole thing, from what it was explained as, is a sort of a sales pitch of coming to my asteroid and trying to to to, to wax eloquence on how awesome a place it is. Right. But it ends up being just. Thinly veiled, you know, innuendo. It's not, it's not thinly veiled, though. It's fairly thickly veiled. The only thin veil is the language barrier. Yeah. That's it. Well, no, just uh, getting the ideas and the way it's being presented. I don't think it's. I think it's pretty thinly veiled. I mean, the, there's a flirtation in the singing too, of, of course. I think well, we her had, voice lends to that dramatically. Yeah. I think we had a case uh, as Joe was translating for, it, for us earlier, where we're like, yeah, maybe it is a thin veil, celestial body. Like, what does that really have to do? And then all of a sudden, it's like every Saturday night, do this. And it seemed to kind of make a little bit more sense at that point that this was really just like, oh, and there the metaphor just became as thick as possible. Um, and also just, of course, the, uh, the the construction of this, the background singer stepping forth. You get the cabaret it's sense. A little, yeah. It's a little dream world. It's a little yeah. fairy tale. She's, she's crazy. Magda's <laughs> crazy. She has all these incredible imageries in her head. She's this woman first who lives on an asteroid. All of a sudden, she's a little fly that flies through the, through the heaven. We'll get that later. Yeah. No, she She's, uh, she just has an incredible Im- ima- um, imagination. imagination, like sure. a little child. They, they and that's ma- what she does with her lyrics. Yeah, and that she does what she does with the music, too. She says she wants a cabaret environment. She goes full force. Like I said, the background singers with a little dee-dee-dee-dee-dee-dee-dee-dee. You have that in the background, and you also have the piano here with like the honky-tonk sound, the very, very bright, tinny thing. It's, it's like ragtime, but obviously a little more Frenchified. Um, the only thing about this track, the only thing I'll say for it, is that it was rather short. It was a minute and 45 second snippet. And I enjoyed every single second of that minute and 45 second. But it didn't really reach out in the same way that I think the first track did with that hook. There wasn't that moment. I don't necessarily need that moment in every single track. But I was like, alright, this is more of a curiosity than anything. It's going to have me dancing. But I know what she's capable of, and I kind of am waiting for those those strings to come in. It's we will a, be getting that later. It's a little sonic scale a little tiny short trip that she takes somewhere Mm -hmm. we will rock you by queen is what 150 one minute 50 seconds it's a very short track it's just uh some really cool idea that she had and she took us there very quickly and then she goes into the next thing and actually i admire her for being able to write that short my compositions are always so elaborate and so long, and I go all these places, and every radio station is going to say, "I'm not going to play this." True, I think it takes it, down. It, it takes a composer like many, many years to realize that some, sometimes brevity is your most powerful asset. From here, we go to track three, caramel. I know what that word means. Caramel. <laughs> so um, this this song is slower than the first two. It, it ta- it, at least in the intro, it takes its time a little more. It right up front uh, presents us with a heartbeat. And yeah. it's almost like just completely on the nose the way the beat just. Uh, it's and a little quicker pa- pace than that, though. Surprisingly, is, despite it being a little beat. bit darker, it is quicker pace. Yeah. Yes, you have that double. But it's like. I, I, it's, it's more. 
ish, and that's where it's it's starting. It's going to be painting more on the grayscales because it seems to be presenting a more subdued nature. Had than the what cabaret the first few tracks were ha- doing. had the cabaret been earlier in the evening, this is certainly the club that they go to afterwards, where you're yeah. going to get a little bit more of a, of a downplayed side. Um, but it, I don't know. There, there's something about this that also sort of left me wanting a little bit like the last track. But still, I, I do want to talk about the beginning because the beginning it's it's even more textureful than I think than I think even Asteroid. This was, this was. It's it's tough to describe, but there's something about the xylophone entering in. There's something mm-hmm. about uh, the fact that we've kind of shifted down to minor. We're in a harmonic minor, so you're adding that element of just mystique. Um, and then also an, in, uh, an influence that I'd like to mention at this point, which seems to be the case. I don't know it's direct or whether it's an attribution, but that's the influence of Henry Mancini, a uh, film composer, who was at least referenced in the copy on Bandcamp. You'd think that would actually be like a direct uh, quote from, from Magda herself. But it, you could hear it. Even if it was an attribution, you can still hear it. For anyone that's ever watched a film uh, that was scored by Henry Mancini, there is this this massive swell that comes about maybe two minutes into this track, and I just love how expansive it is, almost explosive. You know, you'd get it in, in let's say, the the more uh, heart-wrenching scenes of a spaghetti western, you know, amongst many others. And here she's able to capture this into kind of a nightclub scene, and I really dig it. I also like how, even though the song kind of is moving slower in the intro and the verses, it picks up in the choruses. It gives it this kind of dancey vibe. We were singing it a little bit before. It, it, it picks up a bit. It's still not as upbeat as the previous two tracks, but I think the, the, the thing about this song that I've noticed that the, wasn't really the case in the previous two is there's kind of a fairly forward through line. There aren't as many change-ups as the previous two tracks. It kind of sticks its course, which there's nothing wrong with that, but it's something that I took notice of as compared to the previous two. It's oh. a little bit of a tryst song. It's a little, to me, it's it's a little rainy and dark and a little cloudy and it's fall and it has some like heavy-heartedness to it mm-hmm. that makes it one of my not-so-very-much favorite tracks mm-hmm. on the album. Uh, but that's... That doesn't mean I don't like it. It's just something that, to me, is less invigorating than her other stuff. And to me, one of the little subtractors is is the fact that you do get a lot of lyric uh, lyrical repetition here, despite sure. the fact that yeah. you know there's still you know that word caramel. Yeah, we hear it a lot over and over. It's caramel, dommoi, dommoi, ton caramel, and then over and over and over again. Those exact words that block mm. over and over, and it's it's. You know, it's and sweet. Maybe the first five times. By the end, you wonder where the where the idea. Like she normally has this sporadic imagination, so it almost seems like, from what I understand with her in within three tracks, it almost seems like she would get bored of this idea a little bit. It's also the the her breathiness is kind of working against her being so subdued musically. It's blending a little bit into the background of everything else. It's too close to what the music was doing. And it feels like some of the, like it not being invigorating and not being, you know, very energizing. I think it's because her voice just is not presenting that energy, nor is the music, and it's just, it's just weak that way. No, I don't know. It, it's we obviously have some splits with this track, but it's it's a little early to be too judgmental. And I did I do want to really really emphasize the first. Uh, uh, pro that I gave it, and that was texture, with the idea that, with the upright bass especially, I really like the kind of call-and-response nature, where the, the upright bass seems that, with the pizzicatos, seem to be almost following 
uh, the rhythm in her primary lyrics. Caramel, don't want, don't want. And then as she, you know, emphasizes that don't, then you get a, a pizzicato pluck right following that. And then it kind of answers with this pivot back and forth. I, I absolutely adored that, even throughout the end. And then when you combine that with the strings, it actually really, really does still have a lot going for it. It's just, you know, she sets the bar high. So then all of a sudden you really start nitpicking within the course of the album. And tell me one album where that doesn't happen. No, of course. Yeah, sure. we've, they're, they're, yeah. we, we always that, go through it. It's very, very hard to get that perfect five and that perfect, you know, just solid album. Almost that, every week, yeah, yeah, the same thing happens. Yeah, the music Music is a fickle <laughs> thing. Music, again, it relies on, on, on time and experience, and you need to sit with it sometimes. So let's go to track four. Sessoir. So, <laughs> so what I really love about this track is where you really get a sense of the kind of rough and smoky vocals. I believe it was Joe who said when we were listening to the album prior to recording that she her voice is imperfect it's not this perfect thing but that's what gives it its character she embraces that and utilizes it to her advantage and it really comes through here in the playful nature and the construction of the track even the guitar that starts to step in and has bending almost broken chord work a, a broken sh- uh, strumming to play off what her voice is doing d- does a great job of giving it almost a bluesy kind of a feel to it in the in the long run this bluesy is still sultry though it's not it, it's it's almost upbeat but for blues well see all right i'll go with sultry and i want to also want to apply that to her voice because the only thing i the only nitpick that i would have with the word imperfect is the idea that of course it's it's the way in which she approaches it in this song is so downplayed and so lazy as if that moment right before you're about to fall asleep and of course the soir we have that this night is that correct tonight this night tonight tonight this night night, whatever and everything (laughs) pursues that you have this jazz organ that makes an appearance and frank despite the, the soft it's actually one of the more dominant instruments and as a whole we're getting a more recessed downplayed nightclub feel um, much more so to a greater degree than we got in the previous track like in like in uh, episode 152 just recently in Twin Danger you have a lot of tracks that are just using the brushes <clears throat> just really to set that stage everything is smooth it kind of wants to put you to sleep but it sounds like she is at this point at which she doesn't really know what the next stage is. Like, she's just falling asleep herself, and this is like her last muse, her last little diary entry before she conks out. Well, after all, Kush tries the next song, which we'll get to. Right. Which means go to to sleep. Go go to sleep. sleep. I mean, she's setting it up right there. And, you know, I don't know if you guys know Carla Bruni. She used to be, oh no, she is the wife oh, Carla or the Bruni. ex-wife I think I do, of yeah. Nicolas Sarkozy, the uh, former president of France. Yep. And she used to be a, a model, this incredible, uh, super successful model in Paris. Mm-hmm. And she all of a sudden out of the blue started, uh, decided she wants to now record an album with like French chansons. And she has such a raspy voice. <laughs> super imperfect in that set. Um, reminds me a little bit of Magda. Magda ha- doesn't have it as raspy as uh, Kala, but I heard her life many times, and it definitely has, you know, that little point where her voice breaks off or whatever, and it, she makes it work perfectly for herself. It just works. I wouldn't want it any diff- any other way. You know, there's a, there's a 
it's funny because this has been referenced before, and actually now that we have a, a German speaker, this would be really helpful, but there's a German word for this, and it's, it's something like Sprechgesung or something. Sprechgesung. Sprechgesung. Mm -hmm. The idea of just like singing as if you're really speaking, and that's mostly in opera specifically, but I, it's what I kind of feel here, that there's almost this like pull away from the singing quality, pull away from the melodic uh, approach, but instead pursuing more of just like, mm -hmm. I'm talking to you, you know, like a really, really personal conversation in the dead of night, and that's what I get in this track. Well, later on, the the crooning, humming backups do come in. What though they do is is set up a, a sort of like bridging piece between the vocal work and the instrumentation. It it's like a fog rolling in when they come in, almost ghost like. Yeah, it's very eerie. And yeah. it does a great job of once again sort of accenting the the sexual appeal of what's going on here. But at the same time, it really sets the night, the idea of night, fairly perfectly. It does a great job of, of doing of doing both the setup to the next song and also to really say this is sort of like a finality but not the end, a end, more than anything else. Well, and it gives the, the this great kind of uh, envisioning of, like, I picture it as slowly swaying in the moonlight. Like, it has that nighttime feel. And I also like the way the song resolves itself. It has a very classic outro that the way the song was kind of composed you almost expected it but i welcomed it because it just it felt right yeah classy ending and hey big shout out to the guy who plays the triangle on it <laughs> triangles can sound so shitty sometimes but he really made it work so beautifully yeah it's i agree a great it's, player it's all in the rhythm there it's all in this like kind of afro cuban feel here because yeah. actually this had more of a, i mean despite the fact that of course this is that her voice sounds kind of lazy there is more of a pep to the rhythm and it kind of keeps it going the tri triangles like reacting with it and especially to the rhythm this reminded me of a band called Black Heart Procession who uh, they did an album sometime way back in like 2003 uh, the name escapes me but it really was just like centered in that Tropicalia atmosphere and I feel like I don't know it's it's almost the same exact thing that they were going for but they were coming from very different influences between that band and uh, Magda mm -hmm. herself but yeah this um I, this kind of took the the the, uh, the album in a little bit of a darker dire darker direction, especially with like the male choir in the background, and we continue that with track five, Custoi. And this song <laughs> is the first time that we kind of really get a very vocal focused intro um, that only had some minimal instrumentation at first. It it really picks up after a couple of lines, but you really get a sense of her voice and her beautiful vocals front and center here and of her accordion yes yeah. it really comes in here and there's these belts and what do you call castanets castanets exactly and she plays it herself she plays her accordion herself mm -hmm. on stage she stands there and just plays her That's accordion awesome. and sings it's beautiful I remember I think I saw in an interview that, that she didn't know exactly like what to do like what should I do with my head should I just be a singer or something like that and she kind of took up the accordion because the, in, in Boston she can hide yeah she can, she can hide behind it and then it's just like well all of a sudden you know in, in France she'd be like one in a million people who play accordion yeah, but then all here. of a sudden here like I, she was in Boston at the time and all of a sudden it was this, this, this like you're the only accordion player that's so awesome and everyone yeah. was just glued to her but um, considering this this opening right here of course that, that title Christoire means go to sleep and it really does play like a lullaby mm -hmm. at this point the, finally the music is like matching the lyrics and everything is in sync here the, the piano and, and the vocals just alone it, yet you still have like these kind of playful background vocalists that do this little like octave thing they rise up and then rise go back down a, almost like like this uh, Broadway surge you know in the, in the beginning of in, in uh, 
in like an overture or an exposition, that kind of thing. And then finally, another little bit of a stereotypical element, of course, you include that harp transition just to exit out and every, everything is just layered to fill this lullaby thing. And then finally, we get into the verse and now the rhythm steps in and everything is just a lot thicker. I, I was enjoying the crap out of this, but even still not as quite as much as the chorus. And then there was the carousel. Exactly. Which, that's the only way I can <laughs> well. describe it. It was straight out of... Yes. It was... It was Jan Tiersen, Amelie. You know, you guys... Oh, yeah, familiar? of course. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's totally what I remember. I love that. I, I, uh... It was... I, I viewed it as like a snippet of childhood. Or maybe if if anybody remembers this growing up, the mobiles that you would hang above mm-hmm. the crib, and it's a they would have four. music, yeah. yeah. And it would it would be the sort of thing that you would play to put a child to sleep, right. which is kind of weird at the same time because it is a it's it's almost loud compared to everything else that's going on. So in one hand, it should be jarring and isn't. In the other hand, it should be energizing and it isn't. It it just fits very well in this lullaby esque. But at the same time, there's still a lot of the the personality of the album is showing through. Well, to me, to me, it's a, I, I gotta interject to say that to me, it's a kind of a dream because it's like you know I noticed that you jumped jumped ahead all the way there. That's almost like a bridge or or a, a transition, really. This this like interlude that exists between uh, later verses and later choruses, where all of a sudden you have this whole carousel. Of two, one, two, three, and it's very strong and very fanciful at that point, as if you've just been immersed in the dream, because then you come back at the end, and it's almost like back to the lullaby. It's strange. But really, what I enjoy most, I, I just from my own personal taste, was actually that chorus. The chorus that came mm-hmm. earlier on, right after the verse, where she's just very simply singing, just rising up from the fifth to the sixth and the seventh. I love that. And just pivoting right back down again. I, I don't know. There's something about that that, that has me immersed and it's the simplest of melodies but uh, you know it, it was almost like that expansion later on well, like took the track in a different direction the center the center was straight on the hook itself that's where my emotional base was well i feel like the song as a whole really does give this dreamy feel which is of course what the goal was and bookending it with a softer side but being more upbeat a little bit in the in the choruses and then of course in that almost state fair kind of interlude kind of gives this song a very beautiful structure that's unique to a lullaby it's you know a lot of lullabies that are sung they're not always just even and the same they have ups and downs and i love that delivery here one of my illusions i made when we were listening to it was uh for the benefit of mr kite that that kind of like showcasing idea but also um, I got a little bit of the lyrics translated, and she kind of goes the same route imagery-wise with lines that, let's dance to the rhythm of the hummingbird. Just something like that uh, uh, to alluding to it, it is, gives it is that incredibly beautiful. Yeah. Or, lie down, lie down, you will be Adam and me Eve. Something to that effect. It's just, it does have a little bit of the... the Sexuality, but it's been replaced with sensuality in a lot of ways. I think even within the sensuality, it's more of a hypnosis at that point. The idea that, you know, three, the carousel, and it's just like zoning someone out. It was a really, really bizarre moment because to me, it always just kind of like comes back to that kushtwa, kushtwa. And, and I don't know, there's. There's something that really, really needs to be accentuated, and that is the strings here. They're expertly composed, and mm-hmm. to me, especially in that that carousel part, as we're calling it, it's like, well, maybe half for the benefit of Mr. Kite, and still half that Henry Mancini. Sure. It's just as sweeping. And the strings are really foreshadowed by, I think maybe it was the second chorus, the strings are in the background. 
they weren't there for the first chorus, but they were there in the second chorus, and they, they're even intricate within this, behind the whole kushtua kushtua thing, and so that by the time you actually get the carousel, it's just out of this world. They've taken off, which is why I see that as almost like, uh, not a digression, that's not the exact way to put it, but a, um, it's like an aside that the track is having, sure. which I find incredibly artistic. And then back to lullaby ending. So... Unless anyone has anything else to say, let's Shall move we on. Go well, to... I think it again leads very well into the next song, because uh, the sexual innuendo when you have Adam and Eve, you know, definitely leads to Shua. Yeah, which is track six, Shua. and this the intro is all rhythm and vocals. It's not much of anything else, and it's got that kind of groove that is just fan. Tastic. It began almost like... <laughs> like I have no other way tastic. to describe it. I mean... Th- it was tastic. Well, the, the reality is, is like, this is the song that really hit me the most. It's one of my favorites, and it's... I'm such a sucker for a solid rhythm, and the rhythm and vocal playing together in this introduction really hooked me. We had an interesting discussion just last week on the concept of sound art, although in that particular case, it was through the lens of acid techno. It's an odd segue here, but frankly, there's something to be said for the sound art in the opening few bars of this because it mm-hmm. sounded almost ancient to me the way the upright bass and the acoustic guitar combine just alone between these sixths that slowly start to fall out of tune i think it was a sixth but it's like there's this bend there where one dips down and then rises back up and i don't know there's something about that almost sounds as if it's being played in an ancient environment like this is you know in ancient greece i think actually beside the guitar there was another instrument that i believe was a bazooki can't confirm that but i think it was so you get this very ancient feel within this very likely might be probably it's banda magda (laughs) (laughs) but what's going on in another way actually you said uh, i believe hip hip bouncing or something of this i mean it it, it did i can see her hips moving as she's singing i can see her being drunk (laughs) in some ways yes especially her santorini wine that she's drinking and she's just like let me drink let me smoke i don't give a damn it's It's very carefree but kind of on the naughty side not even carefree it's indulgent it's unapologetic especially when that bass comes in to start comping with her it's just she's having it's a revelry it's a return also to that darker theme it's not really dark because this is not like a depressing like it's not a song about drug addiction it's a song about indulging in your little bit of your darker side and and it it, it relates back to caramel a little bit and it's got a similar she theme. owns it yeah she owns it she she that doesn't make uh, the that doesn't make the impression on me that uh, she's out of control. Right. Sure. Not at all. She's very much in, in control. control. Yeah, absolutely. I get a sense of that too. It gives a very strong setting to the song too. Like you can picture her, like you said, on stage with maybe a bottle of wine in one hand and the cigarette in the other. You to know? me, this is mostly in the B section there, though. It's mostly in that section where everything just picks up. It's not quite as slow paced and, and lackadaisical as, the, as, as uh, the A section. The B section is where she really starts kind of like reaching out. She's, she's standing up, she's making an affirmation, and it, it, you can hear it even in the rhythm of the lyrics itself it's it's like not just carefree it's it's it, it disregards people's i can i can feel arms flailing in this section so obviously yeah drunkness could probably go along with that well then you're starting to see a divide between the a and the b the a section is that indulgent part this is where it's almost a that slight slur you get when you're drinking just a little bit too much you're on the cusp but you're not quite there yet the unapologetic part the part where she's being you know almost rude almost rude is that b section is when she picks up and is doing those proclamations mm-hmm. 
but they're so inexplicably linked, you can't have one without the other. And as the evening goes on for her, there's more flair being involved. There's more layering being involved. Included and it evolves. by it's, the strings themselves. And also it's, it's that little bit of extra. Would like to point out the string arrangements here. Um, that's, that sound at, at points extremely Anatolian. I think that is the right word. Greek, Turkish, that... I think it's called Anatolian music. The voicings and the scales she uses are so native to that region of, like, South. What what do we got? Southeast Europe, mm-hmm. basically, or or actually sort of already Baltic feel almost. Mm, yeah, Not quite I mean, Baltic, but close. South, Anatolia, I think it's called. Yeah, I guess it's called Anatolian, and she just y- makes use of it so well, which shows. There's so much experience in listening to this music. I, I have very little experience in listening to it. I, it would be a very hard time for me uh, producing a sound like that. But for her, it just comes naturally, it, it seems like. It also seemed like this was the, one of my favorite. I, I mean, this was my favorite, I think, string uh, arrangement on mm-hmm. almost the entire album. And in her live shows, she does a lot of covers of like Greek folk songs and stuff like that. It's yeah. really interesting when she goes there. Yeah, and also just the fact that like, I feel like maybe these these tracks, you almost they almost could have existed like in their own isolated way, but that that's why I kind of termed them as like growers in a sense. That yeah. the track that like as they progress, you realize that it's not going to be the sole block of just like verse chorus transition verse chorus blah blah, and then they expand with like I said the very delicate layering of of these like string instrumentals, and then they they continue on, and it's it seems almost like. What she's trying to do at that moment, usually two-thirds of the way through the track, is almost vaster than what a three-minute track can contain. Which is why I was loving it so much, because it shows ambition on her part. From here, we go to track seven. I'm not pronouncing the name. Fond de la Mer. Thank you. Um, because <laughs> That wasn't hard. <laughs> no, but, but even the simpler ones I would find a way to butcher, and I do not want to do that. So this one is one of those songs that from the moment it starts, the sound bites and the, the setting is so obvious. It's got this by-the-water beach kind of feel. Seabed. And it translated it something to the effect of seabed or sea view or something of that Being sort. Being in front of the... I, I googled it. It immediately... It didn't even give me a translation. It gave me pictures of the ocean. Bed. <laughs> um, but you get thrust into this setting very quickly, you know, based on the kind of delirious almost vocal delivery that's combined with this kind of almost nautical theme. The salsa is definitely showing here. Well, also, I mean, obviously we get like a lot of different places hinted at, I think, throughout the entire album. But mm-hmm. here it, we did really, really seem to be anchored more to that like Caribbean atmosphere. Mm-hmm. And this time not so much in like the bossa nova that had been present, I think, through, uh, throughout the album, but maybe like removed in certain sense. There's something about the rhythm here that just it, it takes me out of Brazil. It takes me out of Anatolia. It takes me out of Greece. It takes me out of all that places. And it's just, I don't know. It's, it's not to say that was that left it lacking, but maybe it's part of that and then part of the other reason that I just kind of like uh, really showered love on for the previous track and the idea that most of these tracks are growers this one was a little bit less so this one didn't really have that part that it were just kind of leapt out instead it felt like more of the surrealist lull in a in an indie flick have you guys I'm sure you've watched uh, 
Ariel, right? The mermaid. Uh, yes. uh, oh, little mermaid. This sure. little concert, this moment where there's a concert and all the water animals they sing together. Sure. Yeah. Da, 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 yeah and of course. you have this choir of I don't I think it's seashells or something in the background who all sing. Yeah. And there's this howling female voice choir happening in this song that is creating a really interesting, almost ocean themed you know setting to yeah. me yeah that's a very personal experience you know uh i thought that was very interesting <laughs> <laughs> it was well and also well I, i started by saying of course it's like the surrealist lull and i guess i mean i'm not going to say i'm not going to accuse that of being a lull but i think that there is a surrealism there that almost makes you feel as if it can be very grand it can be a great spectacle but it is almost aside from the plot yeah almost it almost. does it does seem like it's taking a moment here but i think This is another one of those songs that didn't really, wasn't really a grower like you've been talking about. And I think that evenness isn't necessarily a bad thing. It doesn't make it a bad song. It just is different from what we had come to expect. So it throws throws me off at least a little I bit. I think personally. that some tension is being built, but not much in the way of plot advancement. Yeah. And her voice does something which I didn't really notice in the rest of the album. And it, it loses its, quote, weakness. It loses its sort of husky edge and really does... She goes clear. She goes strong. And while I had a complaint earlier that the weakness of the voice was kind of marrying the weakness of the instruments here, the strength of the voice was jarring. The The solidity of the voice was jarring. And it was like, is this a different person? I mean, obviously not, but it was a different point of view that I wasn't quite expecting as far as the vocals are going. And it did create a little bit of a hiccup for me. All right, so we all got our separate issues with this track. <laughs> it's not. But, it's not perfect. Again, it's nitpicking. Uh, some pretty, some pretty advanced inter- instrumentation at the same well, time. Well, we're all gonna go crazy in the next one, I assume. Yes. Oh, Japanese. Track yes. eight. You could. You cannot always repeat the track name if I say it poorly. <laughs> La Japonaise. No, I'm just. <laughs> so this is this is quite literally a song about the vibraphone player, as you had mentioned. Joe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's who is Japanese. Right. And, and she's always with Magda. She's always there, and she's an extremely sweet person. Yeah, I think that what's interesting about this song, though being that it's about a Japanese vibraphone player is that in the sounds it comes across, you know, the instrumentation in the intro is very much what we've come to expect from Magna, but I feel like as we get towards the choruses, we get these interesting little, very quick interludes within the chorus that kind of ring of Japan and Japanese culture. It's it's like in that pentatonic scale, obviously. Like I mean, it's like the oldest trick in the book for anyone who doesn't really know anything about music. It's like, well, how are you going to play Asian-like? Play just the black keys, uh, because of course that's like... <laughs> in, in pentatonic. But it's like, you know, and it's even not really perfect, because there's all different types of pentatonic scales, depending upon where you actually have your focus. But still, still, it's generally that, you know, for the layman. Once dancer <laughs> in the song... One verse in the song is a conversation between two people, uh, between La Japonaise and someone else, I think uh, uh, some men, and they talk with each other. So, hey, da 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 da. And then the next person goes, oh, it's me, I'm a da. And then he, he goes again back to him. Mm-hmm. And it's an actual conversation that she sings out. You don't see that too often. And it will take you a couple listens as a French speaker to, to, to depict it. Oh, yeah, there it is, exactly. Poupée, comment tu t'appelles? And she goes, Oh, je m'appelle Mika Mimura. And he goes, Tu es trop belle. You are very beautiful. And she goes, Et toi, charmante. And you are very charming. And he goes, Poupée, viens voir ma maison. 
un palais pourtant vibraphone. He goes, hey, sweetie, come look at my home. It is a palace for your vibraphone. <laughs> <laughs> and then she says, Monsieur, vous êtes trop gentil, mais je ne peux pas aujourd'hui. She goes, you're so nice, but today, unfortunately, I can't. <laughs> you know? And it keeps going. It's this long, really cute conversation. And Magda just runs right through it. And it will take you a couple of re-listens to really understand What's going on? Reminds me of musical theater, Hunchback of not no, it's not Hunchback. It's the other one, The Beauty and the Beast. Yeah, sure. When Belle walks through the city and she talks with the, the baker. people. Yeah, sure. Yeah. <laughs> boom, boom, boom. Yeah, it's, it's that like tête-à-tête that they're having, and of course, I do see it in Broadway. I see it in Disney and in Broadway, yeah. and the way in which you 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 hear that also in the way she brings in these little like Japanese motifs. Um, that sort of I I don't I forget the name of the instrument, but there's that uh, likened to a Japanese guitar. You know, much like well, you get the lute, you get the bazooki there's a japanese instrument there and i i don't have it on the tip it's on the tip of my tongue but anyway i know i hear that being played through here so you have the setting of that and then you have the musical theater element of just kind of like ramping up the uh almost exaggerating the dialogue through music which is what music can do i love that yeah i think that the the structure of this song is very unique and it sucked me right back in i mean that conversational style that she's singing is just is very interesting and it's even though it takes time to pick up it still adds a uniqueness to the flow of the song, even if you don't realize it's a conversation. I'm really downplaying also... the, the the instrumentation here because also this is almost almost as as close to my favorite in terms of instrumentation as two tracks ago. But but the thing I saw that really does change this as a song in the album that really makes it stand out is the brightness that everything seems to have in this uh, in this song. You got uh, things like a waterfall oriented chime work, which we really didn't hear. The closest was that, that triangle that was expertly played earlier. It's so much higher register, higher pitched in parts, that it it just doesn't seem to fit the noir, but at the same time, the vocal work keeps it all connected as far as the album is I concerned. think there's been a lot of bright um, bright texture over the course of the album. So but to there me, was that's always th- like a deeper, a, a subtle undercurrent with a lot of the bass work, with a lot of the, but, the Yeah, but it's specific to what she's trying to do here because she's trying to make you feel as if you're being seduced by a bunch of giggly Japanese girls. I and mean, it works. At, it at works. its core, yeah. That's the, yeah. That's the idea. And it it's rooted in that, that culture in its structure, and I think that really is masterfully done. It's not done as a lark, or it's not done to be funny or make fun of it. It's done in a sincere way that's supposed to bring you into that world. And in the end, what a charming and sweet thing to do, to write such a cute song about someone who plays in your band. Uh, She definitely mentions her so much and she kind of makes this little comic figure out of her vibraphone player. I (laughs) I find that so wonderful that she can that she treats her musicians that way in her band and that she makes them part of her art and they make it have a sense of humor about it also yeah um let's go to track nine mush 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 just mush okay mush Mush. Mush. the little fly Ah. so this this intro it got my foot tapping it was like a catchy intro that like I don't know that we've really come to in a while. Like from the, we talked earlier in the album that as soon as the song starts, you were hooked, you were pulled in, and I got that experience from this song again. It was almost tribal, almost. The rhythm <laughs> felt the rhythm felt more modern yeah. than a lot of other tracks. I still have I still have it in my head. One, a two, and chicka 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 chicka. One, a two, and chicka chicka. 
it just felt it, it felt like a few steps from an R&B song but it definitely lended to that and it was the strong rhythm that did that it felt more modern than previous tracks on the record and I kind of really got into it from that moment alone you kind of felt the attitude of the song before we even got any lyrics or got into the deeper parts of the music it, it reminded me a lot of track 2 because of that the texture was up front right away just very very solid and as it gets exposed Lord, it, 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 it sort of goes along the same way. You have a movement of scene work going on here. You have it going through different phases and introducing more elements, adding more texture and color as it goes along. But it keeps that core location or core character uh, amazingly well, even when it almost drops off to silence in parts where you can't really hear that original quote-unquote tribal beat. I work out to this song in the, at the gym. Do you really? I listen to <laughs> it's this a great one to work out yeah, to. It also. sounds like it. Yeah, sure. It, it gets you moving. It has to do for me it, between this, like, what's one of the most fascinating juxtapositions that I've ever heard between a verse and a chorus. It's this harsh shift yeah. to the chorus yeah. after this sort of like smooth, you know, and then all of a sudden it's, you know, I love that. It's, ah, I will in fact ask you to read these lyrics too. Mais toi, tu vois rien, tu es bête, t'es bête, t'ignores ta mouchette, elle se tient, tu la tiens, par ta barbichette. Ah, uh, I mean, it's, well, that was actually timed. Because <laughs> uh, it's satisfying, it really is. It I really mean, is. just the, the punctuations there, the accent. It, it, it. That sound is just great, the way it's written, the bête. To bed. Exactly. And it, it creates a percussion in the lyrics. That's like yeah. what I was saying earlier about it. It's something that I, I find only in French. It's those harsh consonants really, really leap out. Um, I'm sure it happens in other languages too, but oh, it just I, it seems to be so much more pronounced and, and uh, I don't know, accentuated in French. I just, I like the inherent attitude in this song and that you really, like, uh, just the way it flows kind of really conveys it, but even lyrically, it's conveyed that way as well, and I'm I'm in love with her vocals on this track too. And the again, way she sings them, the imagery, and just being able to depict such a small thing that we see five times a day, and we don't even even think about it. a little mosquito flying through the air, and we go, she goes, oh look at that black spot in the sky. Yeah, she calls it things such magical words you know yeah. and she uses such incredible imagery to express little things and it puts she... you into this little magic world I yeah. think you were saying she's beautiful it has beautiful wings they look like eyelashes she's charming she likes the movie theater or something like that yeah. it's 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 yeah. really it's bizarre but at the same time yeah. the juxtaposition is great because it almost seems like she goes from almost the music that narrates the fly just just zipping around you know just minding its own business and then all of a sudden that chorus hits and it's almost like at that point she's shooing it away it's yeah. like that's where the annoyance comes in Mouchette. Mm -hmm. and i just ah i love it i i love what it, the way it's done musically not even counting of course just that chordal shift which I, I i wish i had in front of me i wish i had taken my time with that i believe it might have been like like a, a a minor or major one down to like a five diminished or something not positive about that but i'm just gonna throw it out there for the sake <laughs> of it <laughs> if mark ever hits this she's gonna be like no uh, i got it all wrong it was a major try <laughs> <laughs> From here we go I'll to cower in shame. track 10. This was probably my favorite song only because the story here was, in my opinion, the strongest on the entire album because the heavy bass starts off just being a, an, an intoxicating, intoxicating 
element on the the, the the track itself. But as she goes along, it's just pure seduction. Well, it's, it's the, the construction of the song, both in the way it's sung and when we found out kind of what the lyrics meant. It has this cheeky kind of feel to it. It's an old topic. Yeah. We've heard so many singers talk about killing the <laughs> wife or the pursuer yeah. uh, so I can have you for all to myself, you know? Mm. Like uh, Della Reese, Etta James, they had funny witty lyrics that talked about killing someone or getting rid of someone so i can have you all for myself you know <laughs> sure. it has that beautiful little I mean, like, psychopath nothing's more romantic than psychopaths <laughs> yeah. and it but it takes you back to that kind of cabaret feel it's also got like a kind of tango rhythm to it it really kind of again this is another strong stage setting song like there's a whole story so of course it is it and seems to be returning to the cabaret that was mm -hmm. present in the second track it was very similar to me in that the upright bass really really leaps out um, and it's a lot of little things in this it's a lot of little things that leap out like the piano solo was great that was really more toward the end and not just the solo but the way it gets put in after it's a little bit of a solo the way it's just uh, accents the way it's it adds a little bit of danger to what happens towards the end of the song the flute as well the i don't know if it's a pan flute whatever type of flute but you just get these little asides from it that are just haunting but fitting within this sultry kind of nature i will say that maybe this is the maybe the third track that didn't quite have me in the same exact ballpark as some of the others and it didn't seem to have the same like interpretation leaping these are not things i necessarily need on every track but there does come a point especially toward the end of an album where you almost become accustomed to, to uh, the shtick or the leanings of the artist in question. And that's just a, a kind of like conservative criti critique because I still enjoy the texture of this album almost more than I do just about anything that we've listened to recently. It's, it's really, really fresh for me and it's really in, in, inviting, I think, to see this, this kind of environment taking shape. I just don't, I don't get it a lot in daily life. But there does come a point where maybe like toward the last third, you're wondering whether novelty is, is uh, driving it forward. I want these tracks to do something unique. Uh, within them, all of them. I want them all to do that. I'm well, selfish. Uh, well, uh, your selfishness aside, though, while in, in other tracks I've mentioned on the album where kind of linear structure felt kind of like it left me wanting, here I'm more forgiving of it because it is telling a very specific and True. precise story. So the linearness makes sense in Act 1, Act 2, Act 3 But kind take, of for example, just the last track. Yeah. Look at the, the musical story that she was able to tell off of a freaking fly. No, it's fair. It doesn't, I, the same thing doesn't come out here and yet it's for one of the oldest most you know established uh tragedies in the book yeah you so, know the trope of going you know having a convenient accident happen to happening happening to the person in yeah. the way so to speak it's enjoyable it's just wasn't it didn't pack the same punch to me i don't know well it was not an accident i hope that's clear <laughs> ah, <laughs> ah, yeah, it was really clear it was really clear <laughs> very clear um from here we can go on to the final track of the album which is petite melin Correct? Oui, bien sûr. Petite Maline. There we go. <laughs> it was, you were like 95% of the way there. That's pretty good. Hey, hey, I'm not 100% there. I'm just uh, trying to get along with my school friends here. So. <laughs> um, so track well, 11, Matt has no more chances to get any right. <laughs> no, it's fine. Track 11 is is the conclusion to the record and what I like is it starts in this kind of fanciful dreamlike state which you've gotten hints of on other tracks and we're well enveloped in other tracks and I think it's an, a nice kind of sweet way to um, kind of take us out 
on the final track. You know, I like the kind of setting and aesthetic that's being built here. Well, also, it seemed to be a little more Western to me. It seemed to be a little, well, it depends on what you see as West. If West is just everything West of the East, then, well, everything in this album has been West. But it's um, it's a little more toward, like, a country feel. And I mean, that is more like an American country feel. I don't know if that's, like, a direct influence at all, but it's in the guitarist itself. It seemed to be pursuing that a little more. And it was still expertly done, but it was just an interesting way to close off the album in terms of This is a fantastic track in life where she has an incredible piano player. She goes up to the piano with him. He plays it. Usually that's just the two of them or maybe the bass jams in. It's just a wonderful live track and she probably has very strong emotional ties to it. She absolutely wanted it on the album. It's a good ballad. But I think this one shines the most in a live setting. Mm. I can say this because I've seen them live. Well, also, the idea that, you know, all these tracks... And we should probably be mentioning these other performers more than we actually are. Of course, all we can kind of uh, go to is the, the the primary composer in this whole project is her brainchild, and she's composing for it. Not unlike our guest. This <laughs> is like what he does. But it's like... I mean, there was that, that concept that when you're working really with a large ensemble, there is a lot of ideas get, that get thrown in back and forth. So in this particular case, I remember there was also present in another interview where she was saying that, well, it's like, yes, she has the initial ideas, but in a live environment, especially when they're rehearsing, sometimes it, it's just, it's almost chaos. Like someone will just throw out an idea and it's just like, okay, well, that's great. And then it's just, it's it's spit firing one after the other well, after the it sounded other. Like- so it seems like that's how these you're getting all these variety of ideas because how many influences? can you derive between that quantity of people it sounded like you were saying something similar Joe about when you play live with your band like there there are things that you've created that you've composed and then in a live setting some of the musicians in your band do some incredible things on their own with the work that you've created usually the rhythm section does yeah the rhythm section works out certain hints and rhythms and stops that were not intended and it becomes something bigger and more beautiful and if this song is this good in a recorded session? I can't wait to hear the live session. You've got anything know. because this was probably some of my favorite vocals on the entire album. Mm-hmm. Because she doesn't stay pinned down. That pixie is back full force and just flitting around, just with her accents, with her pronunciation. It was just. It was. You had to follow her. You have to try to catch her to try to pin down even the emotion she's trying to portray right here. And I love that about this song. It really is a great, I felt, a great conclusion to the record. Though I can get a sense from the structure of the song how it would be even more beautiful in in a live setting, you know, especially considering the way you're describing it. Yeah. It's just, it, it seems like it's meant for that. Shall we go to the wrap-ups? Yep, why don't you take us into it, Steve? Good for volunteering, Steve. Thanks. Uh, I'm surprised you volunteer. I hate yeah. going first. Um, our guest, of course, will go last since he brought us this wonderful record. I'll go first if you really want me to. All right, Steve, let Steve go second. You go yeah, first. You yes, always go yes, I'm passing first. the buck. I have that right. <laughs> you do. Well, we all do technically. We just never do it. Bef- I'm stubborn. <laughs> Before we went into this album as a group, I was I didn't know where I was coming from. Um, I understood a lot of the complexity that was involved with this composition, but I don't know if I appreciated it the same way until I kind of started seeing it through Steve and Joe's eyes, especially. There's a lot going on here, and there's no reason to to have that disclaimer in the very beginning. Language is not a barrier to this song. Yeah, you may not be getting the actual verbatim story, but emotion comes through beautifully with the choice of instrumentation, with the choice of inflection in the vocals, with just 
what's going on in the song itself. The evolutions, the flatter songs, the ones that just seem to find a very complicated uh, safe spot and stick there. Yeah, it's a safe spot, but safe for this album is better than oh, well, most other music that's out there because there's just so much diving in here. To, to even imagine what some of these parts might entail when you're talking 10, 15, 20 musicians potentially producing noise at the same time and getting this sort of a product, it's staggering that it does not sound like a wall of, wall of noise. It does not sound like anything I really have heard in a while. It has an old school feel, but this old school feel draws from so many different traditions that it just sounds new. Yeah, you can say this has got a little bit of salsa, this has got a little bit of soul, this has got a little bit of blues, jazz, Greco, country. You don't know where everything's coming from. It's a fusion genre. It's probably the sort of idea of what we're going into as music as a whole. Mm -hmm. It's just creating fusions, creating different combinations. This might be the epitome of that kind of a genre, that kind of an idea. Similar themes, similar ideas, but the presentation is so varied across the, the various regions of the world that putting it together, you get something that really is wholly new. For that, I'm, I'm, I didn't think I was even going to go this high, but this is, this is a solid, like, this is a solid 4.8. It's a really amazing album. I didn't know I was going to love as much as it is. And while, honestly, I don't know if I'm going to be listening to it as much as anybody else here at this table, it's still something that has just downright magic in it. Okay, well, I passed the buck once. I guess I can't do it twice. Nope. This album speaks to me in a really, really... Uh, personal way as a musician because I can learn things from it. I don't get that a lot from other albums. There are things I admire about our previous artists. Um, I mean, of course you can learn from anyone. You can learn from just about anyone in the business, but it depends on where you're focused. Mm -hmm. This is so focused in a general sense. I can just start marking off one after the other where I'm, I'm deriving satisfaction, one deriving from this album as a whole. I can mark off, all right, well, texture, great. I would love to learn about how to compose for that variety of people and send them, you know, in this direction, in that direction, to how to pursue counterpoint, all of that. And just, you know, the array of instruments at her disposal and that she, at her slightest fancy, decides to execute. Love that. Um... That's one. Obviously, instrumentation is another. Obviously, uh, frankly, vocals. I've, I've, I don't think I've really been impressed as much of vocal delivery as on this album recently. I mean, we've pursued a lot of different uh, artists who tend to be very lyrical, that tend to be very focused, but it's not so much like... I find myself really just looking at the words, and I can say, yeah, great words, great melodies, but the way they interact with the music is almost besides the point. Here, it, it's, it's linked every step of the way. Again, that's almost like her, her voice is another element of texture alone. I don't say that a lot. <laughs> I, I think this album was really, really flowing amazingly from moment to moment. And I, I was even ready to... I was flirting with the five. I really was. But there are holes. There are some holes where I just feel like she's not going further enough. 
I, I can only compare it to the only other 4.9 that I've ever put out there, and that was My Brightest Diamond, which was pretty pretty phenomenal album. This is my hand. And I found that it was because of those moments that just leapt out above and beyond. But I found that those are being done under the course of maybe entire tracks. They were built around that. In this particular case, a lot of times, uh, Magda, she's she's developing her tracks with the use of that. Sometimes they're not always there initially. They kind of like propel the track forward later on. I kind of wish they were there a little bit earlier on, or maybe that these tracks were just a smidgen longer. I think that's the only thing that's maybe going to put me back down to exactly where John is, a 4.8. Beyond that, there's just there's too much else here that is jiving perfectly. I'm I'm curious to just about anything she releases from now on. So she's made a, a fan of me. Well, you should know that before I get into my wrap-up. They are currently working on an album called Tigre. That's right. This is a two-year-old album. We probably should have that, said that up front. I don't know if we did I don't think so. This front. isn't a 2013 album. Um, yeah. It's their most recent release, but they are working on a current release that doesn't have a release date yet, as far as I know. But um, but it is their next big record, and they were, I believe, even doing uh, crowdfunding for it at one point. Um, all right. My turn. Um, this album I got in, enveloped in. And I can't really say that about a lot of stuff lately. I've gotten very into a lot of the bands that we've we've listened to recently, but this is the first album really all year where I I was wrapped up in it. Her voice, the instruments, the setting—it was unlike anything I had heard ever. Really, um, it was. You know, I don't listen to a lot of bossa nova, and Steve's talked about it quite frequently. So to have heard something that is so quite so influenced by it was wonderful. And like I said, there are times where, as an emotional listener to music, getting wrapped up in what the words are actually saying can pull me out of it, distract me. When I get an album where I don't really understand the lyrics, I have to go based on inflection of voice and and the instrumentation to, to denote the story. I can kind of, my imagination can run wild, and I can build these scenes and not necessarily know what's being said and make up my own story. That's an important point, which I have to kind of... Uh a little bit of an anecdote here. There was another interview, or perhaps it was the same interview, where she did say something along the lines of why she started writing in French, and the idea is that she had never written lyrics before at the time. She was It was something new to her, and she's like, I always want to do that. I always wanted to, to, to write lyrics, um, yeah, write a song and lyrics. I guess she was only composing and doing instrumental stuff up to that point. And then uh, I, I think she said she was maybe dating someone who was Belgian at the time. So she, maybe she learned French that way. And she became a fluent speaker and she decided to just start writing in French. She she made this decision and she stuck with it. And she said that one of the, the, the great things about it is that you can kind of hide behind that. Just like you said, you know, hide behind the accordion. She can also hide behind the lyrics a little bit. That's not because she was, you know, a poor lyricist in any way, but it was a really, really great and amazing start for her. Because as far as I was concerned, I'm right with you. I was actually almost glad that I couldn't understand these lyrics in the same way because it just put full focus on the music and then also her vocal capabilities along with that, using the language to her advantage as it pertains to the music rather than just simply in terms of lyrical themes, you know? For me, this album is one of those things that I connected more on an emotional level without knowing the whole story than I have on some albums where I know the whole story this year, um, which is why I have to bump it up a little higher. This album isn't a five, it's, but it's so damn close for me. I, I think that if those couple of songs where I felt that they kind of... They stayed even, and I, I can't fault her for that because there's nothing wrong with it, creating an even narrative and an even sound on a track. 
But they're my, breathers. But why breathe when you have that capability? And my my personal taste, it's just I wanted more from those handful of songs. That said, though, this is a damn near perfect album. I give it a four point nine five. I loved it, and honestly, it makes me excited to explore the future of their works, more of this kind of music. I mean, it's just, it, it's like I said about Joe's music earlier, when I find something that I don't know and that I find I like, I just want to know more. I want to take it in. I want to breathe it, pretty much. And that's how I felt about this record. So 4.95 for me. I tried to dissect this album now. I'm going to be dissecting it a lot in the future, just for my own purposes. I want to play, replay almost everything she put down. Joe. Well, Magda has been one of the biggest influences for me in the past years. She, uh, in every way, influences my music making and just by being who she is, as fidgety as she is, I know her in person, as in an incredibly hard worker as she is, I got so much inspiration from her work. So for me, this whole album goes to an entirely new level actually knowing this person following many things you know understanding a lot of guidance through the work she does because I do a very similar work I also have a large band I also orchestrate I also tell my stories in that way and just like uh, <clears throat> just like it was said before um, I use a lot of different elements from different music styles and genres that be get this fusion and mashup of things it's very similar in my own music so from that personal standpoint, I mean, this is such a clear five for me. I can't even, you know, I can't even stress it often enough. Uh, <clears throat> the music and instrumentation, the band is so very tight. I saw them live. Uh, it's, uh, it's just time stops completely and they have a whole new uh, time that happens on the drums and the percussion uh, that has nothing to do with any other time I've ever heard and uh, I learned so much from from it also on the production side the way it's mixed it's mastered the way it's recorded the the way how crisp everything sound how it's panned in a really good speaker system how the experience of listening to a very well mixed uh, product is so different from a shitty recording I've <laughs> yeah. only I've only learned that through her I did not know that before uh, for me work in the studio is a rather recent thing I started one and a half years ago working in studio so is this something you learned from her personally like actually knowing no, her or something just from, from listening the recording and okay. from talking it through with my producer um, so that's it. That's about all I can say. Okay. All right. Well, I actually, I mean, you, you bumped me up to. I'm a 4.9. I, I think right. I'm a 4.9. <laughs> you know what? To be honest, it's. I, I think even that My Brightest Diamond album had maybe even more holes than this does in certain respects. But I think this makes up for it in in other ways to bring closer. Despite that was really well composed, this was well other things. All right. Before we completely wrap up and treat you to one last track um, that we alluded to earlier from Joe Benjamin and a Mighty Hand. Um, oh. What? Joe Benjamin and a Mighty Handful. Full. Full. Yes, full. You handful. Like full. I keep doing that. I don't know why. And I have it written down so I wouldn't do that. My apologies. Uh, Joe Benjamin and a Mighty Handful. Um, first, of course, we will do um, our fan mail. And by fan mail, I mean not fan mail because we didn't get any. So instead, we read the spam bots that post on our site. So, Steve, please bring us our most recent spam mail. <laughs> 
906,140, 780,957. You produced some decent points there. I looked on the internet for the dilemma and discovered most individuals will go coupled with along along with your website. Or internet site, rather. 681,650. I don't know if those are pertinent numbers, but thank you, 62UO. Is that the name of the user who posted it? 62UO. We had a shtick before we actually started getting fan mail from listeners that we had a ton of spam just bombarding the website. So Steve started compiling them and then reading them on the air like they're mm-hmm. fan mail because, well, it's stupid. There's and a, we, don't like, we don't mind being stupid from time to time. Cool. There's a code. <laughs> John Doe. Oh, John sees the Matrix. Um, of course, um, it's my pick next. Um, I first, before I, I um, read my pick, introduce the final song and have Joe read our sign-off, um, I want to thank you, Joe, for coming on the show again. Thank you, guys. Um, this was a pleasure. It's, I'm looking forward to seeing the band again and for the album to come out. Um, my pick for next week is a band we've reviewed before, but not on a complete album scale. Almost. Um, it was They were first brought on by Joe, Joe Rude on his first appearance on the podcast. Episode 36. And it was the band Walk Off the Earth. We did a ton of their covers and um, their EP at the time. Revo. Which then became a full album after the fact. Mm-hmm. This new album that just came out, Sing It All Away, um, I've actually been listening to for a few weeks. Um, I'm a fan of theirs and I saw it and jumped right in. That said, I try and avoid doing that on the podcast because, well, you're already invested, so... Sometimes that can sway, but True. that said, I'm, I stand firmly behind the album, and I like them, and we all were fairly fond of them when we reviewed them last, so I'm interested to bring them back to the album again with a complete original work. They made someone that I used to know an epic song. That's true. Their cover Played of it was quite guitar. fantastic. One guitar. So long. It's 118 episodes ago. Yeah. I think so. Yeah. Yeah. Your math is not bad. Better than mine, because... My math sucks. I, I, could I just wrong. multiplied those three numbers. Don't. Right? <laughs> just don't. Um, uh, the final track we'll be playing for you is, of course, the brand new single we mentioned, That Text by Joe Benjamin and A Mighty Handful. Um, please go check out the music video as well. We thank you, Joe, again, humbly for bringing your awesomeness to our show. Please sign us off for this episode of the Crash Chords Podcast. You know what I was just thinking? Music is life. And life's good.
July. Fifty people drunk and I got down with a guy. We made it on my roommate's desk and broke that watch he bought in Budapest. So I pull, I pull out my phone and text my girlfriend, help me please. When he comes home, I'm gonna lie. There was no party and there was no guy. Wait, where's your watch? Where did it go? Let us make sure that you'll never know. After sent, I realized didn't send to my friend, but my But my, oh yeah, I sent that one right to my roommate. I sent it right to my roommate. Oh no, I sent it right to my roommate. Not to her, but him instead. this and other album analyses, topics, and guests, please subscribe to the Crash Chords Podcast on iTunes, where you can also rate us and review us. For more media, also subscribe to Matt's one-on-one interview series, Crash Chords Autographs. To receive emails on all new content, subscribe at the top of our homepage. Also receive updates by liking us on Facebook, following us on Twitter at Crash Chords Web, our Tumblr, and our YouTube channel. And remember, keep the discussion going, because music is life, and life is good. If you have any questions or comments, feel free to share them in the comment board below each post. Otherwise, email us directly at admin at crashchords.com.